Andre Dawson, Hall of Famer from the Chicago Cubs, and you're listening to the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast featuring everybody's favorite coach, Coach Manaman. Follow him on Twitter at Coach Manaman. This podcast is produced on Anchor, where you can record, edit, and publish all from your smartphone. You can find the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other major podcast platforms. Stepping to the batter's box. Welcome back, and thank you for joining me on the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast. As always, this is everybody's favorite coach, Coach Manaman, and today I am really excited because we have our number one most requested guest sitting down to join us on the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast. He is known around the area as a local legend, and his name is Kevin Romberg. Kevin spent three years in the majors playing with the Cleveland Indians, won an NAIA championship, and was a member of Hempstead's first state championship team. And he has some interesting stories that also follow Kevin around. Kevin, welcome to the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast. Hey, Coach. Thanks for having me on. I'm always excited about talking baseball this time of year, and especially from my hometown of Dubuque. Great to have you. Now, what age did you start playing baseball, and where did you play in in the Dubuque area? Well, Nick, I tell you what, there's so many things I did before even high school. You know, I was very, very fortunate. Um, It all started with uh, in the playgrounds. You know, when we were kids growing up and, you know, with my older brother, uh, my older brother kind of got me involved in sports at an early age, and and uh, he was uh, four or four or five years older than I am. And, and I always played with older kids uh, on the playgrounds in the summertime. The pickup stuff was just phenomenal. It was a lot of softball and baseball and the basketball. And then I went to, um, I did martial school in kindergarten, but my grade school was at Holy Trinity through um, sixth, seventh grade. And then last year in eighth grade, I transferred up to Jefferson. But the unique thing was, Nick, when I was in fifth grade, I played on the eighth grade basketball team at Holy Trinity. And there was a, a, a young coach named Lenny Young at the time. And he was a great right-handed pitcher in the Holy Name League. And I was very fortunate to be able to make the team and had a lot of fun, a lot of good success at an early age in basketball. And then baseball through that time, I was very fortunate with Coach Harry Leitner with the Holy Trinity Tigers of the Holy Name League, which we were pretty dominant through the era before me and through us for this uh, church baseball, the Hoy Name League, for a lot of years. I always played with kids a lot older. I was very fortunate to be able to have the ability to play, but I would be a 14-year-old playing with 18-year-olds and, you know, in fifth grade playing in eighth grade basketball. So I got a chance to really develop and grow a lot with that as well. I can remember telling a priest, though, Nick, not the boy, I told a priest in grade school about our careers in the future. I want to grow up and be a professional basketball player because I was too short for basketball. I can remember that. Too, too short for baseball. 
I want it to be basketball, but obviously things turned out quite well. I, could, I can't explain. It's it's great hearing you mention the Holy Name League. We've had Ed Fan, Hall of Fame coach from Wallert Catholic High School, talk about the Holy Name League. And we had Jim Leitner from the Telegraph Herald. And he talked about how every summer day you would gather at the church and people would come to the church and you'd go to the nearest field and you'd play pickup ball. Or if you didn't have enough guys to play, you'd play uh, you'd play Indian ball. And it seems like that doesn't happen too much uh, anymore. Now, you played in the Holy Name League. Do you know was the Independent League around then? And did you ever play well, some of the Independent League teams? Okay. Um, Coming back, I'll come back and answer that question for you. But it's interesting. You're talking about pickup games and things. And we actually would turn an infield around on Holy, Holy Trinity's field and play wiffle ball. So home plate would be second base. And you had the deep, you had the big green monster in center field because of the backstop. And we played wiffle ball till the cows came home a lot. And uh, But anyway, to answer your question, the independent league actually evolved because the, the Holy Name League kind of went away. It was right at the end that the Independent League started. I did not play in the Independent League. It started after I got done playing in the Holy Name League. So I wanted to say the history of that and some of the names you mentioned there would know more detail of that, but it started after the Holy Name League or just about at the end of the Holy Name League. It's great to get a little bit of a history lesson here from Kevin. Now, Kevin, you prepped at Hempstead and were a member of the school's first ever state championship team. We had one of your former teammates on recently, Mike Dunstner, to talk about that season. What do you remember about your state championship run? Uh, you don't forget. You don't forget when you win something like that. The most memorable thing throughout that whole championship was that we were a team. Everybody contributed. I mean, that's what it takes to win something like that. I mean, we had a lot. Every ball game seemed to be a one or run, one run, two run ball game. A big play here, a big play there, and we just kept winning. And we were very persistent. Um, you know, Coach Core, and there's another example. I was my, my going in at eighth grade in Jefferson. Our basketball team was undefeated, and and I was going to Hempstead. And that summer, I broke my hand playing pickup basketball, and then I broke my leg playing baseball later on uh, in, in eighth grade going into eighth grade going to ninth grade that summer so I did not play any freshman sport I had a cast on for over 10 months above my I broke the tibia fibula in my left leg I slid into somebody a little older than me and I kind of snapped the leg and, and I was fortunate enough to obviously get back but I'd missed all freshman sports and I went to high school at Hempstead I played varsity right away in basketball and coach core I played one or two uh, sophomore games and uh, he pulled me up to varsity and uh, it's just amazing the opportunity some of those coaches going back to Lenny Young and and coach core and 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 uh, Harry Leitner but the the state championship run was just truly amazing it was one of the it was the first one for the school but I just remember it as a team effort I mean and to think about it we only really had about 14 players on that roster I think we added two sophomores at the end of the year and we had a couple of coaches and it's just like um, we just we just got hot, and we had some great pitching, some great defense, timely hitting. But the most memorable thing there, um, well, it's kind of tough. I did hit a two-run home run to get us into the finals uh, late in the ball game. And there's some good defensive plays, but 
And then in the championship game, I did get hurt uh, on a rundown. I had a pretty cheap spike, but we were fighters. We were gamers, and we hung in there and, and, and ended up winning the whole thing. Um, but that run was really um, a lot of kids just playing together and getting it right. I mean, we, we couldn't have not have done it without any one of the team members. And you talk about team and unity and and, and, and young coach. We had a young coach. Coach Corb was a young coach. And and uh, we learned a lot from him. And I'm sure he learned a lot from us. And, and we just appreciate uh, everything he did for our baseball program at Hempstead. And when you talk about state championships, you know, just last two years ago, you know, last year was a pandemic. We missed a year of high school ball. The high school I'm coaching that, we're in the state finals. We're in a state final game in Ohio. And I was trying to tell these guys, some of the staffs were just satisfied or that was our goal to get to the finals. I goes, no, no, because, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, you're not going to sit there and be hyped up, talk about how you came in second. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a lot different when you got uh, that championship. It it makes life a little bit easier and a lot more fun to talk about. But just some great, great teammates. We are lifetime friends. Um, Hempstead was a very important and a big part of my life, obviously, for a number of reasons. And the biggest one ended up being my wife. I met my wife in ninth grade there. And now we've been married 46 years and four kids and so forth and grandkids. But um, it's, it's amazing how um, that can really uh, affect you as you go through the walk of life. There's so many little things. But the memory of winning that state championship, we had a long rain delay. We were stuck in a hotel for a few days. We had a long rain delay, and they moved the tournament over to Cedar Rapids to play in that stadium. Um, and uh, actually, there was a long fly ball caught that would have been a home run in a lot of other high school ballparks. But you know, we just had we just had a good team that was resilient and and, and worked hard and did a little things. It's funny you mentioned that home run in the stadium switch because Mike Dunstner said the same thing that you guys may have lost if you would have played at the original originally scheduled field. Now, you did mention some of your favorite memories and moments while you were suiting up for Hempstead. What do you think was your best individual performance? You just talked about team and you talked about the team aspect, but if you had to pick one game or one double header where you put up monstrous numbers, uh, what would it have been? I got to tell you, I only struck out twice in my senior year. Um, in fact, there might only have been once. It was early in the season. Um, but stealing the bases, having the bat and average. I remember years ago, the cable company used to carry our games on tape, delay. They come to the ballpark, set the cameras up behind first base side. And, and uh, in fact, it was my, I remember my sophomore year when I got called up. I, I was working in Derby Gas Station down there under Romberg Avenue at Five Point. I get a phone call at work. And I'm getting called up to varsity. That's something you don't forget. And then when you get there and you take your first two ground balls hit to you and you airmail them into the cameras. <laughs> that was on TV that day. You kind of, there's kind of some moments you want to kind of forget, but then you turn around and start swinging the bat. You start doing well hitting. Um, it is really, really hard. That's the unique thing about baseball. There are some great moments. I mean, the two-run home run with a wooden bat at, at Johnny Petraka's ballpark. We got to play a few games at, at, at Petraka's ballpark. And there was a couple of guys that had some home runs there on our team. And, and I was fortunate enough to have one of those. 
I mean, having those kind of games and that kind of memory of old Johnny Petrakis ballpark that used to be filled with dime, uh, 10 cent hot dog night with the BIB plumper or whatever that was way back in the 60s when the White Sox and the Indians and all the minor league teams went through there for the Dubuque Packers. So there was a real good tie there. Um, hitting that two run home run um, and to get us into the finals uh, was, was a big moment. But you, you just remember the win. I mean, you remember so many good things off the field. As I remember driving back in the caravan, going back to the high school, and all the parents and administration doing a little ceremony afterwards. Um, but there, there was a there's a lot of good games. I mean, you don't, you know, we, we were very fortunate. We had some good kids in the right spots and and good pitching guys that were were workhorses, and, and our defense held up. So, you know, but uh, it, it was always a great experience in Hempstead. The ballpark is a little funny. So deep, deep in left field and short and right. I mean, I did not hit a whole lot of home runs there at home. Let me tell you. They have since put a green monster in right field. From right center down the right field line, they have a pretty large uh, fence there Good. now. Now, you mentioned Coach Core. And Coach Core is great at listening to the podcast, so he uh, he will correct you on if you struck out twice or if you struck out once. He's he's, yes, he's he been known to do that. If somebody misspeaks, he will shoot me an email and say, "Nick, great job. They were wrong on, on this." And I want to thank Coach Core for providing me with your information, so so we can connect. Now, when you well, think, of, well, sorry, before you ask that question, Nick. I still talk, talk to Coach Carr. I call him every sporadic, every once in a while, him and Alan, and, and he's doing wonderful. And he plays a very good round of golf. You want to be careful with his golf game, but it's so precious that every once in a while I just give him a call of the blue because uh, he, he was, he was uh, very affluent in my life. Yeah, and he made an appearance on the show one time, and it's one of our most played episodes. And uh, I just absolutely love and, and respect that guy. Now, when you think to Coach Core, he was your head coach. How did he compare to the coaches that you had while going through the minors and then also playing in the major leagues? Did he have you doing drills that you would do in professional baseball as well? Yeah, there, there would be some things, but you know, Co- Coach Core was a young coach, and really, when you're getting young people together as a young coach, you just got to have the good discipline. What, what, what I've learned over the years, what you've got to have with young kids. You know, we worked on our bunt defenses. He was one of the only guys in the state that on a first and third situation, we threw through. We threw through. And that was a big play for us in one tournament that we ended up winning on, 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 our, on our state championship run. We were able to get the out at second, and the runner at third did not go because they never expected the ball to go through. Of course, we had a good young catcher in Merritt at the time. And then his older brother, Jeff, was in the outfield, and he's a good pitcher as well. But um, um, those are the things he did. In our bunt defenses, our first baseman's never crashed. We had big John Kaufman. You know, we had big John Kaufman at first base, and I remember forget that same game that we threw through on. We had bases loaded, and it was late in the game, and we were down a run or two. And coach was thinking about pitch hitting for big John, you know, because it was uh, bases loaded with one out or, or two outs, and, and, and we, we – and thank God he didn't. He didn't pitch hit for John, but John hit a ground ball right to the first baseman. First baseman threw it home wildly. Oh. <laughs> so he ended up getting a run out of it. But uh, 
Coach Core just had all the he had the good discipline. You had to show up on time. We I we forever we took a lot of ground balls in the blacktop parking lot because of inclement weather down in the on the bowl. So we you know, we're up on top, you know, a lot of ground balls, but he was just very fundamentally sound. I mean, we, we, you know, for a young coach, he was starting to get his structure and get his through, which carried him on to, you know, three or four more state championships after that. You know, so he's developing his coaching in his way. But I got to come back to this discipline and just being fundamentally sound and making the routine plays and the pitchers throwing strikes. Kevin, I'm going to underestimate the years here, but it's been, I'm going to guess, around 35 years since you've been a player at Hempstead. And you currently still hold two school records, one for the highest batting average. You hit 505 in 1974 and also had 35 stolen bases during that season. Your your legend still lives on now. Jeff Rapp is the current head coach at Hempstead, and I was his assistant for a number of years and him and I just had a running joke because if somebody would not make a play, if there was a fly ball or if there was a ground ball that somebody wouldn't get to, he would just turn his head to me and would say, Romberg would have got that. And and for the longest time, I never understood what he was saying. So then finally I said, you say that a lot. What the hell are you talking about? He goes, he goes, when I coached with core, he would always say that there would be a fly ball hit off the left field fence, and he would say, "Well, Romberg would have got that." And I and I responded, "Well, I thought he was an infielder." And he goes, "He would, but he was, but he would have gotten that baseball." So, you know, thirty five, forty years later, we're still joking when when guys wouldn't wouldn't make those difficult plays, and Coach Rapp would just turn and would say, "Romberg would have got that." Well, that's awesome. That's very good to hear. And thank you for that. You know, um, the Hempstead is just unbelievable for me. We were the first full four-year classes. I mean, the year before us, they did a semester as senior. It didn't open up. But our 1974 class was the first full years at the school. And I'd be remiss not to be to mention coaches besides Coach Corey. We had Coach Otavia in basketball, Walt Kirk. Walt Kirk was the basketball coach. He got me in a referral and uh, getting into um, um, Lewis University to play for Gordy Gillespie at the time. And and there was just a number of people and other families that, that touched your life at Hempstead through that time that you look back, uh, if it wasn't this, if it wasn't that, who knows which way it went. But it's always heartwarming to hear those good stories and on a baseball field. I mean, that's what it's all about is that baseball – Baseball is just is, is just outstanding. It brings a lot of good things together, not just uh, the moments you're on the field, but off the field. You're right about that. Then after you you won your state championship at Hempstead and setting many records, you went to go the NAIA route and played for Lewis University. Now I'm sure the landscape of how things were done differently back then. But what was it about the NAIA and Lewis University that attracted you over an NCAA program? Um, I mentioned Walt Kirk. Uh, he actually was a teammate of Coach Gordy Gillespie uh, in basketball. And it was like one of the whiz kids in Illinois way back when. And they both, I believe, and Coach Corr will be able to correct me in all of this. They played some uh, NBA basketball together or they played some very, very high level basketball together. 
And uh, Walt uh, recommended me to Lewis, who has just came off their national championship in the IA. Uh, Lewis was a, a small school. I was able to play basketball and baseball there because I also was a second team All-State in basketball. And uh, I love basketball. And uh, I went there and I played some basketball and baseball. But the NAI route seemed to be a good fit. I got to tell you, I'd love to have gone to Iowa, but they didn't show any interest as much as I wanted them to do, you know, for me. And, and later on, when I was scouting with the Indians, I got a chance to talk to Coach from Iowa because they come over to play Ohio State after I got them played. And we had a great conversation. He's a, he was a great man at the time. But uh, at the end of the day, Lewis was, a, was, was seemed to be the good fit at the moment. Um, I was coming out of Hempstead, but uh, yeah, it, it, it just seemed to be a good fit for where I was at and what I needed. And I wanted to play two sports at the time. And while you were at Lewis University, you went on to win an NAIA World Series as well. What can you tell us about that experience? I can tell you that experience is another one that you never forget about. When you win national titles like that, you just, you just, it, it was pretty remarkable. But the story I tell a lot of young kids, um, where you go to where you gonna play at, what school you're gonna play for, how you gonna do it. You gotta remember I came from Hempstead, Dubuque, Iowa, and went to Lewis University NAIA school. My freshman year, I played JV. JV baseball in an NAIA school. I played JV, albeit we played hundred games back then. <laughs> Coach Gillespie had a schedule you wouldn't believe in the varsity as well as the JV. And I played JV basketball. My sophomore year, I started playing varsity basketball, but I was slated my sophomore. Now in 1974, Lewis University won their a national title and I was a senior in high school. My freshman year at Lewis, they won a national title again in 76. And I did not go. I was on JV. And the next year, when fall ball started, I was slated for JV again. But my class schedules were conflicting with the JV practices. So I had to work out with the varsity. And that fall, I hit like eight home runs off the nation's best pitchers who just came back from a college World Series that were pitching again this year in fall ball. And our shortstop blew his knee out a month before the season or in fall ball, and I ended up opening up at shortstop and had a double home run, four for four day against Valparaiso State, Indiana, up the road at Vision One School. And when our shortstop came back, I got moved over to third base, so I caught a break. But I tell young kids, here it is. I played NAIA JV baseball, and I was slated again my sophomore year. And then we won a national title, and I was named alternative third baseman down in St. Joe's, Missouri. And it was just a great experience and a great coach and a great program. Um, so we ended up uh, winning three titles in a row. I was a part of the 77 title my sophomore year. But in 74, I was in high school, 75, I was a freshman there. And I quit playing basketball after my sophomore year. But Lewis University is just phenomenal memories there. It was a great program, the great coach. He just passed away. He coached into his 90s. Coach Gordy Gillespie was just uh, the winningest coach ever in college baseball. And you later went on to transfer to the University of St. Francis. So what led you to transfer? And then how were you discovered by Major League Scouts? Okay, I, I think the thing that the, the, the reason that I'm with the College of St. Francis at the time uh, it was easy. It was Coach Gillespie. Coach Gillespie, Gordy Gillespie was the athletic director slash baseball coach at Lewis University. And they were looking at cutting some of the sports. 
And Coach Gillespie had made a statement or something happened where if they were going to cut sports, he was going to leave because it was something that the future needs to be built on, not cut on. And he was quite a man dedicated to his athletics and his, and his athletes at the school. Well, he ended up moving over to the College of St. Francis. And he went over there as a baseball coach, so I went with him. And in the Chicago area, you play a lot of big schools and a lot of good schools. We played, we played Iowa on our schedule. We played Northwestern. Um, and then in basketball, I played against Loyola and DePaul back then. It was quite a treat against old Ray Meyer. Uh, I can remember that quite vividly when I played basketball at Lewis. But uh, they'll find you. If you show some tools, I mean, I don't care where you're going, who you're playing for. You keep working hard. You've got the tools. They're going to find you. And I end up getting drafted in the 14th round that summer in June of 1977. And um, I went on and played at every, every level. But uh, the college experience, the high school experience, it, it, it tries to prepare you for pro ball, but it's a totally different ball of wax as well. It's another level. When you went to play Iowa, did you have that game circled on your calendar for the disrespect <laughs> and, and not recruiting you? And did, did you have a great game or did you crap? No, no we, we did okay. I, honestly, I don't remember. I think we played one game and the other one got rained out. But what I do remember is we had bands going across 80. We got pulled over by the highway patrol. We all got speedy tickets because we're all coaches <laughs> across it. But yeah, Iowa... Uh, Coach Banks was a good guy, great guy, but uh, you know it's a good program. Iowa does well; they still do well. It was interesting when I was scouting too. I went out and saw Tim Costco. We Costa, we picked him number one as shortstop at Iowa many years ago. I had to fly out and, and do my evaluation of him, and it was just kind of nice going back and just seeing that program grow and do so well. Kevin, you talked about your time playing with the NAIA, and we have an outstanding NAIA program here in Dubuque, Iowa, Clark University. And word had gotten out, there was buzz around the ballpark that that I was going to interview you. And one of the questions that people really wanted me to ask you was why you only stuck around in the big leagues for three years. When you look at your career stats – your career stats are off the wall. And you and I were joking around um, off camera about my Oakland A's hat. And you are the perfect fit for a Billy Bean Oakland A's ball club. And in your three years of playing in the majors, you had a batting average of 383, an on-base percentage of 423. While you were in the minors playing in double A, you led the league in hits, triples, stolen bases, batting average, and on-base percentage. In today's baseball, those are the stats that organizations would go crazy for. So everybody was curious, and I was curious, why did you only last three seasons in the major leagues? That's a great question. That's a question I often think about as well. You know, it's like, why didn't I play longer? Why didn't I get the opportunity and it, it's just so crazy, it's hard to grasp, but maybe there were some things that I could have did a little differently or not, but I can look in the mirror and say, I give it my best shot. I knew that it wasn't me. You know, it wasn't, you know, what wasn't, what if I would have did this or what if I would have did that? Uh, my wife, my kids, we all, we were dedicated. We played the game hard. We played the game right. We made that commitment. But very much so in the real world, the Cleveland Indians is a great organization. It's one of the best organizations in baseball today. They've been very successful uh, of recent years. They had some hard knocks 
And uh, back in the 70s, uh, when I played, they just didn't have the finance, finances, resources, and they weren't just really, um, you know, knocking it down at the gates and everything. And and just like everything else in the real world, in, in corporate America or business or even in a school system, sometimes if they bring in a new boss, they bring in a new boss. The Cleveland Indians had five managers in the six years that I was in the organization. So when you go back to Frank Robertson, to Jeff Torborg, to Dave Garcia, Mike Ferraro, and Pat Corrales, they were all managers that were named out of the organization. None of them came from the Cleveland organization. They didn't know anybody in the minor league system. So when they came in, they started getting players or looking at players that they knew from other their organizations or from past. So they really didn't know who I was. And then when I go into spring training, you know, I wasn't standing out as a 6'4 guy hitting bombs. You know, I was a, a, a batting average guy, score, you know, score 100 runs, walk 100 times, still 50, 60 stolen base at 300. Um, it, it just something you didn't know until the season was over. And you realize, oh, man, this kid just did that. So whenever I had a chance to impress a manager, he was gone. I mean, if Cleveland would have went into their minor league system and would go back and pick – you know, a manager that I played for, it might have been a different or longer, different outcome. But I did have my opportunities. But at the same time, the club was not established. So I was an outfielder, an infielder, a third catcher. I played from first base. I did whatever it did to get into the big leagues. So if the Cleveland Indians during the 70s, when I was playing early 80s, I'm sorry, the early 80s in the big leagues, if they were more established, I would have been there a lot longer. But they were still looking for people. They were still going through the turning of different managers and different bosses who didn't who, who I was. That's the only answer I can really give you. Now, I became a minor league free agent in 84 at the end of the season, and I went and played for the San Francisco Giants my last year. And then that got to be close to the age of 30. And back in those days, that was an older player in the 30s. That has changed, obviously, a lot more. But I can only tell you that uh, it was really out of my control. In baseball, you can only control what you do between the white lines and, and keep putting numbers up. And I just kept proving them that I needed to have a chance to play in the big leagues. You know, but just to mention on that part about different managers, I played winter ball in Venezuela and Puerto Rico. And in Venezuela, you know, we had Mike Easterly, we had Cruz's shortstop, we had um, we had Bobby De Niro in center field. Um, I was in left. We had George Vukovic in right. We had a big league third baseman. Uh, we had we had some guys. We had a guy by the name of Ryan Sandberg who was on our winter baseball Never heard team. of him. Ryan Sandberg was not playing that year. He was uh, playing double A in Reading for the Philadelphia Phillies at the time. And um, he didn't play much down there in winter ball. Well, over that winter... Cubs named uh, the manager, yeah. <laughs> the double-A manager that year in Reading in the Philadelphia organization got named the managerial job in Chicago. I'm just giving you an example. What did he do? He traded for Sandberg and Bobby Denier. And when the next year, Denier was in leadoff and, and, and Sandberg is history. You know, what a job he did. What a great kid and what a good guy he is. Ryan Sandberg is a wonderful guy. But anyway, that just showed you that he was in the minor leagues and his guy who he played for and showed he can play and can develop, got a big league job. So in my, in contrast to where I was at, um, none of my guys until after I retired, Doc Edwards, who I played for a lot in the minor leagues, he finally got named manager, but it was a year after I 
had left baseball and his timing was just a little bit off because I would probably play a long time for Doc Edwards while he was in the big leagues. Did you ever think about when Doc Edwards came back, trying to reach out to him and see if he had a non-roster invitee? No, actually, actually, I was in contact with the club. I went down every day. I still worked out, did some things, but that was after I was with the Giants organization. And then I got involved with scouting for the club as well. Now they're 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 shortly after, but nah, it was um, it was at the time where the age of thirty and thirty one was a little bit, um, you know, over getting a little bit up there in age and baseball age at the time. If I can make the sports connection to it, it it's it sounds like the the quarterback that isn't very good that was supposed to be good, but. He had five offensive coordinators in five seasons and three different head coaches in five seasons is is the comparison I'd like to make there. Now, you answered a lot of my follow-up questions that people were wondering, and I was wondering, but if you think back to your time, what would be your greatest memories from playing for the Cleveland Indians and playing at the big leagues? Without a doubt, um, I was dh and I got called up the first time. Uh, in September of 82, uh, I was dh and we were playing against the Boston Red Sox, and John Tudor was on the mound. And the whole season that year, I had not had a home run. And I was dh and Andy Thornton was on regular DH, and he had a night off, and Eddie Whitson was our pitcher. And we ended up winning 2 to nothing. but at the time, it was one to nothing. I already had a single earlier in the middle innings. I hit a 2-1 fastball hit a deep fly ball to the left center field. And I'm thinking triple. I'm running as hard as I can down first, around second. And the umpire's going, hey, slow down, slow down. It's a home run. It's a home run. <laughs> and I just remember running around the bases so fast and getting the home plate and hitting the home run. And there really is a God because that night on September 8th, uh, 1982, is the was the birthday of my first son's, my son's, first birthday he was one year old and i had my only major league home run on his birthday so that is truly a moment to remember but i also remember my first at bat in chicago and i think it was jerry kuzman i pitched hit for rick manning and some of the people and coach uh leitner and other, some of those people came over from dubuque my first uh call up was into chicago on a, on a makeup game i think it was and I pinched it for Rick Manning and ended up getting a walk against Jerry Kuzman. The next night we go up to Milwaukee and Dubuque had a good showing up there. Coach Carver was there and a lot of my family and friends. It was a really, really nice event to see everybody there in Milwaukee. And I faced uh, Don Sutton, his debut in the American League and had a stolen base off of him. But uh, all in all, the, the, without a doubt, the, the biggest memory is the home run. But you got to remember, too, I grew up as a Johnny Unitas Baltimore Colts fan. You know, they were back United to Barry and all that stuff. And I'm playing in Baltimore with Earl Weaver as a manager, and he's retiring. And I got to play in an old Baltimore Memorial Stadium. Then from there, we go on to Boston, and we're in Fenway. Fenway, what a place. You remember that place. I got to play the series that Carl Hughes-Grimsey, I played left field the whole time that Carl Hughes-Grimsey's last four games in baseball. And in fact, his last base hit was a ground single to me and left. I wanted to put it in my back pocket and keep it, but Corrales was manager and he needed that game to be above 500 and so forth. But Because uh, I grew up as a as a Carl Hughes-Grimsey fan. He used to swing his wooden bat in high school, a Hughes-Grimsey bat. You know, so there's a lot of great memories in the game, but um, you know, the one that stuck out the most, without a doubt, was the home run because my 
daughter's birthday is three days later, and she wanted the grand slam. But fortunately, I wasn't in the lineup that night. <laughs> Did you get the ball from your home? I got the ball. I got the ball, and Ned Chandler was a broadcaster at the time. Bless his soul, he died a young man to cancer. He was a great broadcaster. But what's really cool about the broadcast is it starts off with a crack of the bat. And then it goes deep fly ball, left field, rice going back. Mm. You know, I was a Hall of Famer going after my rice going back is going, going, gone. Kevin Romberg has his first major league home run. I eventually want to use that for my cell phone message. A crack the bat, going, going, gone. So am I. Leave a message at the beat kind of thing. But yeah, yeah that, was a, that was a very memorable thing. I do have the ball. Yes. That's awesome. And and one of my baseball bucket list items was to watch a game on top of the Green Monster. Most expensive ticket I've ever gotten, but the most enjoyable experience I've ever had is sitting in the front row of the Green Monster. Actually saw Henry Lame- Henley Ramirez hit three home runs that night. It was uh, David Ortiz's farewell tour. He homered as well, but such an amazing ballpark. And Kevin, you were involved in the coaching and the scouting aspect. When your playing days were over, um, what involvements did you have in professional baseball? And we talked off camera, you are still involved in baseball. What, what are you still doing and what did you do after your playing days were over? Well, the, when I got done in 1985, I, I, um, it was, I, I went into scouting for the club. And I was very fortunate, fortunate enough to get an opportunity to scout for the club. And there again, in the scouting department, I scouted for five years. Guess what? I had five different scouting directors. And in scouting, you know, a scout just can't draft the player. There's so many kids in the country. There's so many scouts. You, you, have, a, you have a local scout. You have a regional scout. You have a, a cross-checker. You have a regional cross-checker, national cross-checker, and you have a scouting director. And the kid's got to go through all the process. And um, I had to get used to a scouting director and how to sell my kids to him to get drafted. And then he was gone the next year. But I scouted for five years. And I went to coach college baseball over at Cleveland State, who they got in the finals this year, the NCAA basketball tournament. They got a bid. Uh, they're having a great year this year. Um, but I coached uh, Cleveland baseball. And then um, I left there and went on to get involved with minor league independent baseball. I got involved as a part ownership of a, a minor league baseball team in Canton, Ohio. I operated that for about three or four, maybe five years. And then I uh, sold that and then uh, got involved with a club in Chicago, which was now the Windy City um, Thunderbolt. So I did some uh, college coaching. Uh, I, I did miss five years at a junior college there. I went from I went from Cleveland State down to the, back to the junior college to the independent baseball and then I had a club in Chicago, and then I did some consulting work, and I was really good and had a good knack of putting people together with organizations to buy clubs. And I went on and did some consulting work. I helped a man pick up a club, the, the Daytona Clubs, wait, the Daytona Cubs, actually. I, I helped with that deal, and um, so I, I really enjoyed that part of it. Um, and then I got involved in the college summer wood bat leagues, which are growing big now, especially with the realignment of what Major League Baseball is doing and how they're going about their business with their minor leagues. It's a great little thing to see what they're doing because I kind of expect that what's happening now in Major League Baseball to actually happen 10 years ago. I thought it would happen a lot, a lot sooner. 
but I also became um, owner of some college franchise in the, the Great Lakes League, the Frontier League. Um, you know, there, there's a few leagues out there that I've been involved with. I've been fortunately be able to uh, keep my uh, recruiting and contacts and scouting and baseball and really just have a, a good time with it. And then finally, a couple of years ago, we kind of left that. Uh, in fact, three years ago. And then I'm at home. What am I doing? So our local high school coach is a kid who I recruited in college. And uh, I went over and helped him out, became an assistant coach at the high school. And now my son, Joe, is uh, hopefully going to be teaching there. And he does a JV part of it as well. But uh, I get to work with uh, high school kids now every day and, and then all my grandkids in the area. So life is good. Baseball has been very, very good to me, Nick. I, I cannot complain. And I kind of went over a lot of things, but there's been so many things over so many years and it, it just comes down to um, you built a lot of good people relationships in, in this game. And, and, you know, when you look back at major league baseball in particularly, it's, it's the camaraderie that you have with your players. It's, it's a team. I mean, the biggest respect you can get in the game is the respect of your teammates. Uh, they, they want you as a good teammate. And to this day, I still keep in contact with my teammates from the Hempstead Championships in 1974. Uh, I mean, I speak to Terry Townsend. He is our center fielder uh, quite often. Um, you know, and we, we get together every so often. In fact, we had a Holy Trinity reunion right before the pandemic hit last year. So with that with that championship team in the Holy Name League, we got to see all those old guys. And at the same time, I got to get with some of the Hempstead guys. And then, um, you know, the NEI guys, Paul Stevens is a good teammate, a friend of mine. He coached at Northwestern for 20 years in baseball. He just retired. Um, uh, so it, 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 there's so many things that I've been a part of that I've been just so lucky, very, very blessed. And uh you just learn a lot from it. I mean, hard work, persistence, and, and just having some good discipline. I mean, I think there's things out there that anybody can do what they want to do if they just really go after it, really go after it and, and, and get as much knowledge as they can to do that. I wish you would have used your baseball consulting skills back about 20 years ago when Dubuque had an opportunity to bring a minor league team and it, and it failed miserably. Maybe if we would have had your uh, leadership, we could have had professional baseball here as well. Well, actually, that I was very close to that at the time as well because um, that club there should have happened. Um, I kind of stayed away from that. I We almost... Um, the Damaport Club, the Burlington Club, all those older cities now, the older clubs. But uh, what happened back then, the stars were lined up in a perfect thing when the owner of the AAA club in Des Moines um, was trying to get the A-ball franchise of the Cubs minor league team to come into Butte. But at the time, the, the uh, boating base of the city, um, the elderly, or they just didn't want any kind of a tax increase at all. Yeah. And at the time, it just was bad timing for way the economics and the things were lined up because it would have been a very, very good thing for Dubuque. Very good thing. It would have been long-term. The way Dubuque can wrap their arms around minor league baseball and give it that experience that it has in the past, it is unfortunate. I still, I still have visions of a ballpark being built down there in Obertrakis Field, but the reality is... It seems like the West End is more attuned, but I think there's still some opportunities. 
what could happen. I, I don't know if it will be affiliate baseball anymore because of retractions, but there's a lot of good college franchises out there and independent clubs now too that will give you the great family affordable entertainment. And it's just nice to see that the Field of Dreams is opening up out there as well. And they're doing some camps and some things that they haven't done in the past yet because of the pandemic. Looking forward to that game in August to be played out there with the Yankees and the I'm sorry, is it the Yankees and the White Sox? They rescheduled them? I think it is. I believe so, yeah. Yeah, in August. So I'm kind of hoping that 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 really plays out well for Iowa to have a major league game. Um, but, you know, when you talk about that deal 20 years ago, that was, uh, it, it is unfortunate because the stars, people don't realize how hard it is. There's only 30 A-ball clubs. There's only 30. And the Midwest League was one of the A-ball leagues. And, and to have that lined up and to get the stadium and built in there, it was very unfortunate that it didn't pass. Now, Kevin, I, I do have to talk about this. I didn't know about these sort of things until I, until I started researching you. And actually, it popped up in a Facebook group I'm in a couple days ago called Vintage Baseball. You were named Men's Fitness Magazine, one of the top 10 most superstitious athletes. And the internet is full of Kevin Romberg stories. So I'm going to read some of the ones that I've pulled, and we know that the internet is always truthful, right? And I want you to tell me, is it a fact or is it a fiction? And then just maybe a little background with those stories. So first one is fact or fiction. Rick Sutcliffe once touched you on the toe while you were in a bathroom stall and you did not know who touched you, so you went around the clubhouse touching everybody. And from my readings, I saw that it, it was kind of a quirk of yours to always have to get the last touch. And Mike Dunstner, one of your former teammates, said that that was uh, one of your quirks as well in a previous episode. So Rick Sutcliffe bathroom story, fact or fiction? Rick Sutcliffe is a great guy. Rick is a heck of a right-handed pitcher. I uh, got him in the Dodgers on a trade uh, with him and Jack Percani. And and uh, Rick's just a great guy. But um, next question. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Fact or fiction? Actually Rick, actually, Rick, you know, Nick, Rick mentioned on ESPN just a couple of years ago when he was doing some <laughs> broadcasting. He was asked, who is one of the most superstitious guys you ever met? And he goes, it's got to be that Kevin Robert that I played with. But, you know, that my phone, my phone blew up that night when yeah. that happened as well. Um, but, but Rick's a great guy and uh, it, it's a lot of fun to hear that kind of stuff. But uh, next question, Nick. Another one. Brock Jacoby once tagged you out in the minors. Jacoby says he threw the ball out of the stadium. He said that since the ball touched you last, you had to find the baseball, and you spent two hours searching in the parking lot to find that baseball. Fact or fiction? You know, it's great. Brooks, another guy. I do the fantasy. I did the fantasy camps for twenty years with Cleveland, down in Florida and in Arizona. And Brooke is just a great guy. He had a great career with Atlanta. Him and Brooke Jacoby used to play minor leagues against him a lot. And Brooke went on and had a good career. And, and he came over to Cleveland. And we got to play um, a lot together. And the, it's a fantasy camps are amazing because you get to re reunite with all these older players that we played together with and had a good time with. But, um, yeah, that was a lot of fun. So, uh, next question, Nick. Hey, Nick, did I tell you I did some broadcasting for five years or three years over here 
for the Class A team of the Indians in Eastlake. I did some radio play-by-play, and that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that. I, too, I as well, has, have the face for radio as well, too. So, but, uh, <laughs> I love doing that. But uh, next question, Nick. All right. Coach. Two Sorry, more, coach. Two more factor fictions here. Um, it was stated that a quirk of yours is to always have the last touch. If you were unable to touch somebody, you would send them a personal letter saying that this constitutes as a touch. Well, you know, a lot of strange things happened. The night in Milwaukee, I got called up there, you know, from Chicago, we went to Milwaukee, you know, the big, there was people carrying signs up there, touch me, touch me, touch me, Rambert, touch me last, you know, kind of thing. And a lot of fun with it and, and so forth. But, uh, yeah, it's always interesting, you know, when you go through those things and the way people remember those things. And it's amazing how many times people will touch you. I mean, it's crazy. Not anymore at the pandemic. It wouldn't happen anymore. But, you know, but uh, next question, Nick. And the Coach. last the last one is, and this is actually what showed up in the Vintage Baseball um, Facebook page. And people were blown away by your stats and they were wondering why you only stuck around for um, for three years. And you addressed that earlier. But there was a game against the New York Yankees where the umpire had to stop the game and tell the Yankees players to stop touching you. Any truth to that? <laughs> Nick, I think you're getting a lot of interesting facts and fiction things there. And there's a lot more out there that really did have a lot of fun with. But... But I can tell you that um, I did get ranked as high as number two, by the way. You know, and I was um, ranked number two at one time, but uh, uh, it's kind of crazy. But to, in all honesty, to uh, get to the questions and you're talking about, for me, it was a way of focusing. I mean, when you're in the big leagues and you're playing 100 and, 162 games, 182 games of big leagues, 162 in the minor leagues, and you're getting a lot of bats. You can't waste them. You're going to get three to 500 of bats. You don't waste in a bat. You got to have great focus. You got to have great, you know, a great routine, how you go to the ballpark every day, what you do for your workout, what you do for your training. You know, I get up every morning late, and, you know, went and watched Ryan's Hope, One Life to Live, all my children, the soap operas at the ballpark at 12 o'clock. We went outside, we worked out, we did extra hitting, we did our ground balls, we did our infield, we did our stretching, we played our game, we went out and we had a pizza. And then we did the same thing day after day after day. And you really had to be focused. You couldn't lose sight and you had to stay within your routine and to be able to be successful on a long-term basis. You couldn't get too high. You couldn't get too low. You know, you, 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 know, you act like you have to been there before. And when, you, and when you're hitting and you're playing the game, it's just a lot of focus there. And, um, you know, in, in that year in Chattanooga, it was during the baseball strike. Uh, the Sporting News sent down a photographer. They were doing an article. I got in Sporting News with a big article with my family, which was very nice. And there was three or four camera shutters clicking during the game. Oh, here was a power drive. You know, I fell below 400 for the first time all season, but I ended up doing well. But to get back to your question, it, it was a form of way of, of me to be able to focus and get through the season. I had a lot of fun with it. And I'm not going to deny or I'm not going to confirm any of the things that you mentioned but are the things you may hear in the future but it has definitely been a very very good thing and a lot of fun but people look at it the wrong way when they started getting negative when it got really negative i kind of shut it down because my kids were getting old enough to now read and see you know daddy may be nuts <laughs> you know <laughs> kind of i guess that's what we had to change but uh, obviously there's no left turns either there's no left 
there's no right turns. There's only left turns on the baseball field. When you run around the bases, you always turn left to get home. And I was going to mention that as well. And um, I, I was going to say, too, that Kevin has since stopped this. It was reported on the Internet. I would like to thank. I don't know if that's fact sufficient, because remember, Coach, at the end of the day, it's my rules, my game, my mind. I win. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin, I would like to thank you for being a guest on the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast. Before we hit into the podcast ending double play, have one last question for you. What do you enjoy most about Dubuque now? What did you enjoy most about Dubuque growing up? And do you ever make it back to Dubuque? The thing that I love most about growing up in Dubuque were the families and the friends were so together in the communities. And obviously the things you cannot do today, but when you walk up to the playground, on the way you were picking your teams, you were playing the pickup games, you know, you had each other's back. Um, it was just a very, very good tight knit community. Um, the whole city, uh, there's a lot of great natural resources with the rivers and so forth. But as you grow older and look at the history of the town, it's really unique. As a kid growing up, I'd have to say that I would be on the playground. I can get a good baseball game, a good pickup basketball game, a good football game. But we had to be home when the streetlights went on. You know, we had to be home at dinner at five and then go back out to the streetlights. But that fact about Dubuque, and have any opportunities to play as a young kid with kids older than them when I than I was was there. Um, what I like most about Dubuque right now is to go back and to reminisce with all of our old friends that we still have there. We have a lot of good dear friends. We love to go down and stay in the hotel along the river. The rivers we were just down there and it was frozen over and we were up in the hotel suite. It was just such a beautiful view, and we just got to you know really look at look at the city in a different way than when you were a kid. My wife, Denise, I mentioned she's from Dubuque as well and at Hempstead High School, and we just get to go back a lot. Right now, we average about once a month because my mom, my mother's still alive. She's 91 years old. She's doing well. Uh, my father-in-law is 90, and he's doing well. So we get to go back and visit uh, quite often. So we, we still plan to come back, and there's just a lot of good um, – good old ties there that we enjoy it's about a nine and a half ten hour drive or a quick flight into chicago and then then drive over but uh, uh coach we uh, we get to get back a lot and reminisce about the community and how it's changing and a lot of the good things that are happening and you know the the the, the, the new bypasses i mean it's starting to, to finally connect all the way around i don't know if this ever going to happen in my lifetime but it, it, it's amazing how it is growing a lot of good things are happening there and I think from a family standpoint, I think that the, the people in your age group and your kids have just got to really, uh, you know, keep leading these communities and doing the things that you're doing with the young people to uh, have a, a good community. It's a great place to raise a family when I was a kid, and I still look at it that way. And 643, we're out of here. Post game show is brought to you by. Christ, I can't find it. The hell with it. Thank you for listening to the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast. You can find us on social media, 
Facebook and Instagram by searching Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast. And you can follow me on Twitter at Coach Manaman. Go to Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star review, find us on Spotify, and subscribe.